You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coaches, and welcome to episode 54 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. I am your host, Chrissy Beltran, and I want to introduce a topic to you today because it is near and dear to my heart. It's something I've been learning a lot more about. Um, I feel like it's something that's becoming um, more of an issue front and center in our world today, and that is being really selective of choosing children's literature that is diverse and representative and inclusive. And this can seem like a real challenge to do for coaches. Um, We don't always have control over what resources we use, but sometimes we are in the position where we can actually make some really great suggestions to teachers or some really great purchases with school funds. And we want to know, where do I find the books? (laughs) So I'm excited today to welcome my guest, Alyssa, from Children's Lit World, because she's going to walk us through some important ideas to help us understand what inclusive literature is, uh, what the, you know, windows, doors, mirrors analogy really means, and some great authors and publishers that we can look out for. So as we are supporting teachers in curriculum and in planning lessons and in making purchases, that we can really have a good uh, spectrum of literature at our disposal. And we won't be always scrambling going, oh, I need to find this. I need to find that. We have a good idea of where to go and where to look. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Alyssa today because I think she's going to give us some helpful tips and also a really clear understanding of why this issue is so important and relevant to all of us, regardless of the populations that we serve. And that includes teachers and kids. Okay, so I am ready now to welcome Alyssa to the podcast. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I am so excited about this too, because I have followed, and I mentioned this a little while ago, uh, we were just chatting. I have followed your account for a while. And whenever I was thinking of podcast ideas for this season, I knew I wanted to talk to someone about diversifying literature and the resources that we use with kids. But I wasn't, I, I was trying to think back to the name of your account and I couldn't remember it. I was searching for it and I searched for a while, <laughs> but Instagram is not the best search engine. <laughs> and, uh, and that's where I had seen you. And I thought I had saved some of your posts, but I couldn't find them either. So I must not have, I must've messed it up or something. And so I actually had to put a call out to anybody who follow, who looks at my Insta stories, which thankfully enough people do that I was able to get a response asking if they knew which account I was hunting for. And a few people sent me your account. So um, your, your series that you did on, you know, choosing literature and, you know, things that we might want to rethink was obviously pretty impactful to a few people because they knew exactly what I was looking for when I asked about it. So I'm really happy to have you on to share your knowledge with, with everybody who listens to this. Yes, that's great to hear. And I'm glad that we were able to connect. I think that uh, it's called the um, Reconsider Lit series. Yes. And it's hashtag Reconsider Lit. And I think it really did resonate with a lot of people at the time I started this past summer and I'm, I'm still writing some posts about it. I took a little break and it's taken a bit more of a backseat because mm-hmm. uh, like many people, I'm an educator and, I'm yeah. a teacher now and there's just, as we all know, a lot going on. And yeah. so I'm still working on it. I'm still posting more. Um, and there's always more that I want to 
uncover and discuss because I think that the conversations that we've been having over at uh, Children's Lit World on Instagram have been really fascinating and uh, the dialogue has been wonderful in my opinion. Yes, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the comments. Whenever you read through the comments, you know, you hear, I mean, sometimes you hear things you're a little bit saddened by, but most of the time it's people who are like, oh, that's an interesting, like, like they're really responding to the new information. So that's great. For sure. I'm really grateful for the audience that's there and um, it, everyone who comes to check it out, because I think uh, it's a great way for people to see kind of how these books have resonated with people in the past. A lot of them are mm -hmm. books that have been used and maybe read to them when they were younger and mm -hmm. they uh, have lots of memories going back to those books too. Right. Yes. That emotional connection is a huge, huge piece. And I actually want to kind of ask about that a little later, whenever we talk about, you know, how these books might be like, are, is there ever a time that you would point these things out? Or, you know, I really want to ask about that because I feel like there are books that I grew up with as well, that in retrospect, there are elements to these books that are very problematic. Um, and then there are elements that I, I know why I loved it, you know, so I really need to really be thoughtful about that. Yes, so I feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's okay. So it's normal. <laughs> so, so before we get too far, could you introduce yourself to everybody who's listening and share a little bit about who you are, um, how you ended up doing the work that you're doing and really what kind of work you really focus on right now? Yes, I'm Alyssa or Alisa Leclerc. It depends on where I am or who I'm, who I'm talking to right now. I am an international teacher and I live and work in Columbia, South America. I'm in Bogota currently. And so I go by both really interchangeably okay. uh, and it depends on who I'm speaking to. And I've always just had this passion for children's literature, even when I was very young. And we had lots and lots of books in my house. I'm grateful to my parents for uh, really encouraging and fostering such strong access to print in our house. And uh, that's kind of what I grew up with. And then I studied elementary education and my bachelor's is in elementary education and I got a reading endorsement and I just fell in love with my reading endorsement classes and my children's lit course in particular. Mm -hmm. And I had a wonderful professor Dr. Jane Ellen Brady, if she ever listens, but uh, she she said, if you really love children's literature, you need to go to this university, um, which was the University of Georgia, and you need to study with this professor. And so I said, okay, and I'm from the Pacific Northwest, but I decided I was going to apply there, and I applied to a few other universities and got accepted um, with an assistantship at the University of Georgia. And so I decided to go and work with this professor and a few other well-known professors um, in studying language and literacy education is what my master's is in, um, and, but specifically with an emphasis on children's literature. And while I was there, I also coordinated the conference on uh, the Georgia Conference on Children's Literature and assisted with the Georgia Children's Book Award. And so my background is in children's literature, but also uh, I paid a great deal of attention and was always really fascinated with critical literacy um, in grad school and studying critical literacy, which kind of views readers as active participants in the reading process and invites them to move beyond passively accepting uh, the author's standpoint or what they read in a text and encourages them to go beyond it and bring their own perspectives and their own viewpoints and their own background to a text as well. So that always really appealed to me and that work appealed to me, uh, especially since I read I had a professor when I was in undergrad read uh, 
the book Skippy John Jones. Mm -hmm. And it just never really sat well with me, but I couldn't quite articulate why. And there were other books that I felt like there was more to them, but I couldn't quite articulate why. And so I became really interested in this and in critical literacy and in how we can um, bring what we are to a text and really kind of shift the power dynamics between the author and the reader um, and kind of put the, put the power a little bit more with the reader, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I think yeah. That's, that's interesting. You should mention Skippy John Jones because that's one of the titles that I saw on your account. And I've seen it, you know, also the same information around that shared in other places. And that is one text that I used to enjoy as a, as a classroom teacher. And I think part of it was because I taught students many of whom were bilingual. I live in um, El Paso, Texas, which mm -hmm. is the majority of people are bilingual in English and Spanish here. Um, and so I guess because the kids used to play with language like the character did, you know, they, they would kind of go back and forth and play with things in, in the same way. It didn't, it didn't bother me and it didn't, it didn't seem like they had an issue with it either. But in retrospect, after reading about it, I can understand why that is, that can be problematic. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Skippy John Jones is a, in case anybody hasn't read it, it's a, it's a picture book um, about a cat who, well, he's a, he's a cat who pretends to be a chihuahua. Mm -hmm. That's I, what I mean. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he pretends to be a chihuahua. And then he, um, he has like these little adventures, but he does a lot of, because he is a quote chihuahua, he pretend he does a lot of things with um, really like Spanish, st like stereotypes of the Spanish language and like music and things like that. And mm -hmm. um, so he, he kind of perpetuates some of these stereotypes and also like the playing with the language in a way that isn't really necessarily very nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can speak to it better I than I can. <laughs> now, now I feel like there's more positive representations. Mm -hmm. uh, this came out a few years ago, but it is wildly popular. It's a huge best-selling series now. And there's, you know, stuffed animals and uh, mm -hmm. they have the stuffed animals at Kohl's and whatnot. And so it's, it's wildly popular, mm -hmm. I think, for a reason in the sense that like you're saying it was one of the first books that I remember that incorporated uh Spanish right but now and so at first I also thought the same thing like oh this is great um but then some for some reason it didn't quite sit well with me my my mother is Mexican and my I grew up in a predominantly um Mexican hometown, mm -hmm. uh, I think similar to El Paso in terms of the demographics. Mm -hmm. And so for some reason it didn't quite sit well with me, but I, I, I do have, I went back home um, to my childhood home over Christmas break and I found a copy of it um, in my, in my books, in my bookshelf at home. So I, I, at some point um, had purchased it as well because it appealed to me in terms of, it was one of the first books that I remember that incorporated Spanish and I wanted that so desperately. Um, right. But luckily, and fortunately, now there's so many more mm -hmm. positive representations that include Spanish more respectfully and that don't rely on um, stereotypes and um, sonic brown face that, you know, we don't have to rely on books like that as much. Uh, it's just, it's sometimes difficult, though, because those books have already kind of taken off. Um, right. And so we as educators, we're, we're strapped and kind of... Um, tied in and pulled in so many di different directions that we're, we're used to using the same things that we do. Um, and it's difficult to find new high quality children's books. Mm -hmm. And so when we find something that we know works and that the kids relate to, and it's fun, it's, it's really easy to keep wanting to go back to it instead of trying to find something that's um, different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Because like you said, we're, we're pulled in so many different directions that you've got like, okay, what do I have? <laughs> what do I mm -hmm. already have? 
So it yes. absolutely does happen that way. And the Skippy John Jones books are fun. Like they, they present very fun. You know, they're, they, they're lively. You can use, you know, different, like you can sing the song parts. And so, yeah, it can be, um, it's very appealing in that way. So it, that's a real challenge sometimes. Um, exactly. I wanted to ask what your favorite children's book is because and I feel like I should ask this of everyone because maybe it would tell me something interesting. <laughs> I feel like maybe that's a question I should just add whenever I meet new people. What is your favorite children's book? Well, I, I was thinking about this and it's something that I frequently come back to because I feel like it's ever changing. Yes. I don't have, when I, I don't have a like ultimate favorite children's book mm-hmm. um, because what I am interested in is always shifting as well. And when I went back and talked to my mom about the books that I grew up with and the books that I loved as a child, a lot of them are what I consider now to be problematic. And I'm like, well, I don't love that one anymore. And so there's a lot of books from my childhood that I don't necessarily want to pass on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think today, um, the day that we're recording this is the day of the inauguration, January 20th. Yeah. And so I think today I would have to say that my Um, favorite picture book is The Next President. It's by Kate Messner and it's illustrated by Adam Rex. And it's just, it's not a perfect book. uh, And it's not my favorite right now because it's perfect, but because there's so much that you can delve into with it. And I think it's really appropriate for the times that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And it's structured not chronologically, but it's framed by periods and years that allow the readers to kind of see what, uh, different presidents were doing at the time that one president was inaugurated. So it kind of goes through different periods, like uh, when George Washington was inaugurated, uh, what other presidents were alive and what were they doing at that time? So they can see, readers can see different aspects of uh, past president's life. And there's lots of interesting facts that are included. I love the format. It's also, uh, it's also the, another part of the framework is that it's, um, Adam Rex, the illustrator, uses uh, kind of a museum exhibit, and mm-hmm. so it shows a diverse group of people who are going through a museum okay. exhibit, um, a museum of history that shows uh, different presidents' lives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really love about it is that it doesn't really whitewash or sugarcoat history. And it says, for example, that John Adams was only one of the first five presidents who didn't enslave people. And I love that they use the word enslave. Mm -hmm. And they include the fact that Thomas Jefferson, despite the fact that he uh, wrote the words, all men are created equal Mm -hmm. in the Declaration of Independence, he enslaved hundreds of people on his Virginia plantation and they use the word enslaved. But I also think it's an interesting book because there's, they include uh, pertinent facts and they don't whitewash history. But at the same time, it isn't, it isn't perfect. And there's a lot that readers can kind of delve into and discuss um, and decide why the author or the illustrator made that choice. Mm -hmm. So for example, I know some people, (laughs) there's some controversy because some people are upset. Um, At the back of the book, there's a portrait of Hillary Clinton and she's one of the, the only, the only individual shown who was an elected president. And so some people were upset that her portrait was shown at the back of the book, but you can discuss with kids, well, why why was Hillary Clinton's uh, portrait shown at the end of the book? Maybe it was to show how uh, the demographics have changed in the people who represent like the major parties. And there's another illustration in, in the beginning of the book that shows Uh, several black people and they're carrying a building on the first few pages, which if you do some research, it's the federal hall, 
building in New York that no longer exists, which um, when New York was the seat of the government, it was a significant uh, government building at the time. And so you can discuss the choice, like what does it mean that the authors show these black people mm -hmm. holding up this government building? Does it mean that they helped basically like hold up and support and build um, so much of our so much of our government and so much of our country? Or is it when that uh, this, the seat of government was moved that they literally did the moving and even though even though their rights were denied by the government at that time. So you can discuss these things with kids. And there's also an illustration of James Buchanan and he's shown um, walking with another man like in close conversation. And it talks about how he was one of the first, um, one of the only presidents, I think the only president who never married at the time, but there's some research and some rumors that show that he was possibly gay. And it looks like maybe the person that they depicted in the illustration um, was a U.S. Senator that was maybe a lifelong partner. So those are things like even with older children and picture books can have a lot of depth. And those are things that you can discuss mm -hmm. even with older kids. I think sometimes we think that older, older kids can't have these conversations or that picture books are just for kids until they learn um, how to read. And then you can move away from the pictures, but you can have these conversations with picture books um, or, you know, with any other books with kids at different levels. And I, it's not, like I've said, it's not a perfect book. I, if I was going to, uh, you know, add any, add any suggestions, I would love, you know, some information about why the author and illustrator did make these choices, but it does make for some interesting conversation mm -hmm. with kids. I think too. Uh, one of my other favorite books is Fry Bread, I think by oh, Kevin yeah. Noble Millard. And I love, I think that book has really, it's, one of my absolute favorite children's books too and picture books because I think it really sets a precedence for uh, how much background information is, is included in the end of the book because there's like eight pages of notes about his research and you can you can share those with students and just see how much depth and research went into creating that mm -hmm. book. It's a lovely, lovely book, especially it's for primary beautiful. school. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful book. Um, I worked on some um, anti-racist curriculum with a local organization over the summer and they are hosting live, live, live Zoom sessions, you know, virtual sessions um, with area kids. And um, that was one of the books that I used with K2 as I just thought it was mm -hmm. just gorgeous. And so, you know, there's a lot to talk about, you know, family yes. and yeah, very meaty. It's a simple text, but there's a lot to it. And so I think mm -hmm. it's great with primary and upper elementary too. It's, mm -hmm. it's really yes. Yeah, one of my other absolute favorites. Yeah, it's a beautiful one. So your tagline is diverse and inclusive children's lit, or anyway, it was at the time that I made this note. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what does that mean exactly? This was more, this is difficult, I think, kind of to define. Mm -hmm. um, but I think ultimately, it just means that everyone is able to see different facets of their identity reflected in positive and empowering way, because there's multiple aspects of our identity. Um, it doesn't just mean, uh, you know, books that have different races. It means lots of different things. And uh, every part of you, um, ultimately, you should be able to find a book that relates to that part of you. Uh, that's what that's what the ultimate goal is, I think. And so I don't think it's just about physical representation of marginalized groups. Um, it's not just about including a black character here or a mm -hmm. character in a wheelchair here, but also about how are they shown and um, are they shown accurately and respectfully? And additionally, who is telling those stories? For me, I, I try to focus a lot on own voices books um, because for decades, other other people who are cultural outsiders have been telling 
these stories that aren't really theirs. And I think that's oftentimes where a lot of the issues come when we find problematic issues in children's literature is somebody is trying to tell a story that isn't accurate or isn't authentic because really it's not their story to tell. Mm -hmm. So I try to focus a lot on own voices books because I think those are more likely to be accurate. Um, But also because this, because publishing is changing and because the field of children's literature is changing and the face of children's literature is constantly evolving, we really, I think it's important to elevate these new voices in children's literature um, in, in order to make sure that the representations that we see are accurate and authentic and real. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like the way you define that as being able to find, a, you know, every piece of yourself should be represented somewhere. Um, and that's a really good point because there are so many facets to people and it can be easy to look at whenever people say, oh, this is a diverse book, um, which in itself can be problematic if if they just mean that it's about a person of color or something. Um, mm-hmm. That's usually what they're talking about. They're usually talking about race. Yes. And they're usually talking about um, a race. If it's a diverse book, they mean a race that is not white. And that is, yes. you know, so already we're establishing, well, this is, this is the norm. And if you're diverse, you are not the norm. And that's really not the intention yes. of, of what that's supposed to mean. Yes. Going back to um, the next president, I think that's, mm-hmm. um, it received a lot of star reviews. And I think one of the, one of the reasons why people like it is because they say it's a really diverse book because they're going through a museum exhibit and there's a woman in a hijab and there's a man who has a baby strapped to him and there's, you know, black characters and there's all of this diversity, like in these very, in a few pages in the beginning and a few pages in the end. But then you also, just because it has all that diversity there, you also have to think about, well, whose voices are missing and whose voices are not reflected. Like, um, Native Americans, and if they were to tell the story, how would that story look different? And that's that's mm-hmm. the work of critical literacy. Mm-hmm. For sure. Interesting. So you kind of you're kind of talking about the idea I want to ask about next, but um, I mean the idea is that obviously children's literature is this ongoing conversation because we're still we're figuring it out. I feel like we are we are taking a step back and really kind of reflecting, and I don't know that that was being done for a long time by a, by the general population, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we've, I've, I've been learning about this from a lot of different sources. It's something I've thought about for years, but I feel like we have a new, like a new perspective on it. And so what are some of the things that, that you think about when you consider a resource and whether it should be used with children, like some of the qualities or characteristics that you look for? This is something that uh, I had to really, my ability to kind of examine and critically analyze a children's book, I really had to hone and develop it. I don't think it's something that often comes naturally because we're used to reading literature with, you know, oftentimes the first time we read it, we're reading for pleasure and we're just reading to, to enjoy it and see what the author is thinking. And it, it takes a few reads sometimes to really delve into, uh, to delve into a book and decide if it's something that we want to share and if we want to essentially promote, because what we're, what we are putting in our classroom libraries mm-hmm. uh, and our home libraries, we're essentially promoting and validating. So mm-hmm. it, it takes a while to, to get there, I think when I first started looking at children's books, um, there was one book that I was looking at, I don't remember the title, but uh, I told my professor that I, I thought it was a good book. Uh, and it was about a young girl and she was struggling with math. It was about her struggles with math. And he said, you know, this is well-written, but it relies on stereotypes. And so that's that's one of the first things that I always think about now because there's all, often a stereotype of 
uh, girls not being good at math and we don't want to reinforce those stereotypes, but I hadn't considered that. So now I've kind of developed my ability to look for common stereotypes uh, and to check for things like tokenism and who is um, missing and who is and how different people are shown. Uh, and those can also be examined in the illustrations as well. Like um, if we're looking at Asian Americans, are they are they drawn with slanted eyes? Um, do they rely on stereotypes and illustrations? And so that's an important thing that I try to look at. I think, like you said, it's an ongoing, it's constantly ever changing too because children's literature uh, reflects kind of the values of our society at, the, at that time that it's published. And so as, as time goes on, our value systems and our and what we care about changes and shifts. And so one of the things that I think we can also look at is the copyright date and not to say that all books that are written <laughs> before a certain time before a certain time are bad but uh, a lot of the, the books that I wrote about in my series are often you know older books because they the values in our society have changed so much and we're so much more critically and socially uh, conscious of uh, how different people are represented that when you're using older books they they might not reflect the society's uh, that we have today. And so I try to check the copyright date and lean more toward modern books. Um, I have some older books that I still use in my classroom because they definitely do still have value. But I also just think just in terms of my classroom and my readers, I think they're drawn to more current books anyway. And so I try to, you know, fill it with books that are relevant and current for them. And I try to think about the subversive messages and themes like I wrote about the giving tree, kind of like what are the messages of books like the giving tree or the rainbow fish and mm. who has the power um, and how is that power being used? That's something that we can talk about with kids too. And we can also look at the active doers and like the heroes who is doing, uh, who are, who is, who are we holding up and who is taking action in the book and mm. what kind of actions are they taking? and who is observing and kind of like how how do people work together are they holding up heroes that you know they're lauded as one special person who was unique and was able to carry out all of these things of their own volition or is it talking about um like in terms of the civil rights are they talking about a group of people who came together and worked together for these things and so i look i look at that as well and I definitely, like I mentioned, I definitely lean toward own voices and try to consider the author's illustrator, um, the author or the illustrator's background or perspective and think about what qualifies them to tell this story and maybe why they're telling the story. Because as we know, the author, even if they think that they don't have a bias or perspective, it's always somewhere ingrained in the text. And so I think it's important to think about that. I try to really defer uh, to the experts. And I think that this is essential in a lot of the work that we do as educators, there are individuals and researchers who know much more than I do and have a different experience than I do. So I turn to them. Uh, for instance, Dr. Debbie Reese writes a lot about uh, Native American representations in children's books, and she has a website, American Indians and in Children's Literature. And that's the website that I always check if I want to include a book that um, features Indigenous people. So I try to defer to the experts and then I think about uh, just in terms of a personal preference, I try to include more human characters versus anthropomorphic characters and animals. 
just because there's research now that shows that students are able to, students and kids are able to take in those messages more effectively and implement them in their own lives if they use human characters. And I think in terms of looking at um, and seeing themselves reflected in children's literature, we want human characters because nobody's going to be able to relate to, you know, a big tall cat in a red and white striped hat. So uh, <laughs> I try to take that into account because we want them uh, to see themselves reflected. And in terms of my classroom library, I really try to take the whole of the classroom library into account and do like an inventory with students at the beginning of the year. And when I want to find new books, I think about, does this help fill a gap um, that we currently have in our classroom library in order to reflect um, a society that uh, is more diverse and is more reflective of the society that we actually have um, currently. And I also think a lot of times when we, when we as educators try to bring in books that have different cultures and different things um, and bring in more multicultural literature, uh, it can have a tendency to really focus on the struggle and the plight of those races. And so I want to try to balance out, uh, and this is something that I always have to think about, is trying to balance out uh, the amount of books that are about um, struggle and resistance, um, because those have their place, but also books that are just about joy and books that just have characters being themselves and doing their own thing too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I do have to say, unpopular opinion, I have never understood the book, The Giving Tree. I don't get it. I feel like that cannot be the message that we're supposed to get from that book. I don't understand it. I, it, just, it has bothered me from day one. I was like, this little boy is a horrible person. Just, I mean, what a, I mean, take, take, take. I just couldn't handle it. I never cared for that book. And so seeing that, that theme questioned now, I still feel like Shel Silverstein cannot have intended us to think that was the theme, but I don't know yeah. what he thinks it is. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> I don't, I actually don't think I've, I felt alone in that opinion for a long time because yeah. <laughs> I, it was always read to me growing up and my parents loved it. Um, and I think you can take, you can read it from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a parent, you can read it from a right. much different perspective too, but um, there's lots of different messages in that book um, to consider. And there's also, now there's a, a parody book called the, the Taking Tree that I think is really interesting. Um, with older kids, you can kind of juxtapose those mm -hmm. two books, but there's a lot, there's a lot to dissect, but based on the comments, when I wrote about the giving tree, I don't think it's an unpopular opinion anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. Yes, we can, we can reconsider that one. Um, so you, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but in, in inclusive literature, who is included? So I would really love to see more research and more statistics uh, on books that explore multiple facets of people's identity, like I mentioned, that go beyond race. So positive representations of gender and disability and family structures and class. Class is one that we, I think we often forget mm -hmm. too. And so we, and we want to see positive representations of LGBTQ people and characters. And we want our literature to reflect the diversity of our society as a whole. And so I think that's what inclusive literature means. And in terms of who is included, everyone. I, I definitely think that we can do more research and making sure that those are accurate and positive representations. But also, I think one of the first steps is just figuring out what are the numbers in terms of how much is being published, kind of like the Cooperative Children's Book Center publishes those statistics every year in terms of the race of mm -hmm. uh, characters who are 
who are represented and who are published in different years, I think that would probably be one of the first steps. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen those, those, um, actually, I've seen people turn them into different kind of memes and stuff like that, where they, they show you the percentage of characters, and they use different characters to represent like a, you know, like a bar graph almost, um, or pictograph, I guess, of how many characters are being representative of different groups. And, um, and it's interesting, and people do tend to respond to that by saying, well, a lot of those books have animal characters. And, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, but like, even like you mentioned, you know, people characters, tend to be more impactful. But even if you pull out the animal characters, what about what's left? I mean, that's that's not the end of the exactly. conversation there. So. Exactly. And a lot of the times they include, um, with picture books, the statistics include, um, they do have, you know, where they kind of uh, give statistics for if they're written by own voices, mm-hmm. uh, authors and illustrators, but they include um, authors and illustrators. So sometimes the illustrator will be um, an own voice illustrator, but the author isn't mm-hmm. and that sort of thing too. So there's definitely a lot that we can unpack within that, but I think it is a good first step because I think that it is powerful to see it kind of displayed in the infographic style for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. It creates an awareness at least, which is a start. So I was, as you were talking about, you know, your own children's literature that you read whenever you were younger and one of the books that I, or a series actually, that I just, I loved when I was a kid was Little House on the Prairie. And, you know, I read all of them and, um, and, and also did. I'm laughing because I also did. Yes. Yeah. And, all of the, and all of the extra additional ones about Rose and yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, even once they got a little weird because they were, I think they were posthumously pu- published or something like that posthumously. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm thinking about those and that's, you know, it's, it's a question that I, I work on every now and then in my brain. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in what way, because obviously there, there are issues of, of racism there and of like this idea of, you know, the white man needs to take over the entire continent and, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's normal at the time. And it's, we know now it's, it's very wrong. And so Paul represents this character who goes, and, and they all have, they all have the same mentality, but, um, but Paul represents this, this force going out into the, you know, quote, wilderness and just, you know, taking it over regardless of who was already living there. And then even whenever, um, at one point there's actually a huge issue where they have to move because they realize that they're on the territories that, and it's just like this whole, it's just a, a huge mess in the book presents it as, you know, well, why do we have to move? Right. So as I'm thinking about this, I, I mean, there was obviously, I learned a lot from those books about pioneer life. Granted it was whitewash for sure, because pioneer life was horrible. <laughs> we do not want to do that right now, <laughs> but, but we, you know, I did learn a lot of things, but I'm wondering, you know, at, is there a, a reason to use books like this? Is, you know, it's providing a, them as a non-example or understanding bias or, you know, is there a certain age that it's better to do that with or not? What are you, what is your thinking around those, um, those kinds of books and, and whether they are useful in any way? I struggled with the same, well, like I said, I read the series growing up um, and I often think of, I have a daughter and I often think about what books um, I would like to pass on to her and share um, that I loved as a child too, and how I can best share those. And I struggle with the same thing um, and thinking of how I can use this book um, effectively. Should I be using this book effectively when I, um, I was supposed to teach Stone Fox and it was a part of my curriculum and I did the first year use it, but I decided, I ultimately decided not to um, because one of the reasons why I decided not to, and something that I think we need to think about is we want to be cautious using books as an example um, if they include harmful or stereotypical depictions of race, mm-hmm. um, 
So for example, like Little House on the Prairie or Stone Fox, because for every for every one of those non-examples, we need an overabundance of positive representations um, of that race uh, in order to fully kind of counteract it and mm -hmm. balance it out and kind of explore it critically. I think we need an overabundance of positive representation. So I was teaching overseas at the time and I just didn't have enough positive representations in my classroom library, mm -hmm. unfortunately, to kind of um, in my opinion, balance it out or do that, do that work with students. And I didn't want that to be the only representative, not the only, but one of the only representations of Native Americans that they read that year. Mm -hmm. And so, and I also think when we're lauding and holding up this, this book, even if we're looking at it critically, we're saying we, we are still in a way saying like, this has value. Um, and, and we have to think about why does it have value or are there other books that we can kind of compare it to that do something a little bit differently. And then we can kind of um, compare and contrast those books. So like mm -hmm. with Little House on the Prairie, you could read like, I think um, Indian No More or, you know, read more positive um, representations of Native Americans and um, kind of compare and contrast those side by side and talk about how are, how are these similar? How are they different? Um, how, how might this story um, shift if we tell it from a different perspective? And so those, those books do still have value. And I think that they can be used critically in lots of different ways, but, but it takes a lot of positive representations in my opinion. And also to make sure that, um, that students are able to, to engage in that work and that you have been engaging in that work uh, with them for a while. And so they know kind of what to expect and can, are capable of doing that work. Personally, I think, it is easier to do that work with your own kids than yeah. with than with than with uh, your classroom, um, just because you're you're more capable of like monitoring what they're reading and and providing more positive books and that sort of thing. I think it's definitely more feasible to do with your own kids. And uh, I think about this often in terms of reading like the classes, like like um, you know Peter Pan or uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like, um, do I want to read these books and and how will I kind of counteract them if I if I do this um, work mm -hmm. with my daughter someday. Um, so that's something that I definitely try to think about. I also, I definitely do try to engage in this work early on in the school year with my students. We um, start very early on, but we read, uh, we do a classroom book a day and we read lots of picture books and talk about books and try to shift the power uh, early on from the author having all the power to readers having more power and being able to think about how, why the author made this choice or what they're trying to make you think and those sorts of questions. Uh, we read Encounter, which is one of the books that I wrote about by Jane Yolen. Um, and I did, I did use that book as, as an example and a non-example because I think actually a book can be both an example and a non-example. Before I had only used it as an example because what the book is, is it's a, it's a, telling about the first encounter that Christopher Columbus had with the indigenous tribes on San Salvador. And it's from the perspective of a young Taino boy. And so that story isn't told very often. So it definitely had value. And so one of the things that I think we can think about is, is this story being told somewhere else more effectively in a different way? And then we can pull that book instead. But with this book encounter, there aren't many books that tell this story. And so I figured, I needed to tell it from this perspective because they don't get this perspective. Um, and so I used it anyway, but one of the things that we talked about and that I wrote about is that the narrative, 
kind of offers a sense that the Taino people were uh, completely annihilated and became extinct and uh, that they don't exist anymore. But now there's new research. They found this tooth in the Bahamas, like a thousand year old skull, and they pulled a tooth and found a strand of Taino DNA. Oh. And they tested a lot of Puerto Ricans and every single Puerto Rican that they tested uh, had, uh, had Taino uh, DNA. So really, really, they're not really they're not extinct, and that's something that we talked about. And then we read a new ZLA article about the the new research that they found, and then they wrote a two voice poem. Um, and I encouraged them to kind of bring in multiple perspectives. So I think that's something that we can do with books uh, that have a perspective that is missing. A two voice poem kind of goes back and forth between two different perspectives. So they could write. Um, between the perspective of Christopher Columbus and the Taino boy in the story, or they could write between the Taino boy in the story, or maybe uh, uh, someone who is um, indigenous in Puerto Rico and who has Taino DNA and is current. And they could go between different perspectives and explore that like in a two voice poem. And so I, I tried to, uh, I do try to bring in examples and non-examples as well. And I think that they can be both in one story. I really love one of my favorite things to do is share with kids because it's always fascinating to them. And I think it's fascinating to us as adults too. When publishers have decided to change the illustrations or the words, and then we can discuss why, why did a publisher make oh, that yeah. choice and why did they change that? Also, like, um, for instance, Amazing Grace is a really popular book um, by Mary Hoffman. And in one of the illustrations, she's sitting... Um, cross-legged, um, crisscross applesauce, but she's depicted as a very stereotypical uh, Native American. She has a feather in her hair. Um, and so they changed that illustration in later books, but I found the first, the first one in my classroom library when I took my class over. And so I kept that one to um, compare and contrast and talk with kids about why do they, why do you think they changed this? What's different? Um, and uh, I did the same thing with, there's a book, The Case for Loving. And uh, they they described it's about Richard and Mildred Loving and they're um, one of the first interracial couples who mm -hmm. um, they fought to uh, validate the their marriage as an interracial couple and he was described as like a good and caring man and it said in the, one of the first editions that he didn't see differences and then they later changed this um, which is uh, really interesting to talk about when we talk about being colorblind and right. um, try to do um, anti-racist and anti-bias work in the classroom, what that means and why they changed it. And then they describe his wife, Mildred, as being part Cherokee first. And then another edition, they described her as being part Native American. And another one, the one that I have now is as American Indian. So we talk about those different terms and what those different terms mean. So I think that there's definitely ways uh, to do this and bring, bring in non-examples. I think what the literature that you bring in, it's it's difficult to say like, read this book with your kids and talk about it, talk about this book with your kids because it's definitely always going to depend on your classroom demographics and your students' background knowledge. For instance, we read, uh, we recently, today we read, um, or yesterday, Felice New Year, Eva Gabriela. And it's mm -hmm. about a girl who comes to Columbia for the first time and has New Year with her family in Columbia. And I chose that book to read with my kids because they're Colombian. And so we were able to talk about what what traditions and what customs felt familiar to them and unfamiliar it was the spanish authentic um was there anything that they recognized did they see themselves being validated or were there things that were um 
uh-huh. different than they were used to. And we do the same, we did the same. There's a new book called Digging for Words. And it's about the story of Jose Alberto Gutierrez. And he was a, a trash collector and he kind of built a library. And so we read that um, because it takes place here in Bogota where I teach. Um, and we talked about how the illustrations were so authentic because the illustrator is from Bogota, but the, the author uh, isn't, it's not an own voice um, mm-hmm. written text. And so some of the Spanish, for example, seemed inauthentic to them. Like they wouldn't maybe use the word maestra. Um, they would say instead like profe or, you know, different words. And so um, it really depends on your student's background mm-hmm. and the demographics, the type of books that you want to bring in with them. But I definitely think this can also be done at a young age too. And we can kind of shift. Uh, I know, for example, educators who have done and talked about um, books like the Rainbow Fish in primary grades, um, mm-hmm. and what and what was it good that Rainbow Fish did this, um, or even talked about No David like in first grade. And Vivian Vasquez is a researcher who uh, explores c- critical literacy with preschool age kids. And so I think this work can definitely be done with younger kids. You just have to kind of switch the questions that we're asking them. She calls them. Um, problem posing questions, you can shift the questions that we're asking them to make them less abstract and more concrete. So instead of saying like, who's in the text, you can say, well, who is doing the talking? And who's instead of saying whose voice is missing, you can say, well, who doesn't talk? And then instead of saying like, how can we, what story would an alternative text tell? You can say, well, what would so-and-so like insert character here say if they told a story? Um, things like that. So I think it can definitely be done. We just have to think about how we approach it. And I think kids love doing this kind of work because it shifts the power dynamics and it gives them more power to be like, you know, the author isn't the only one telling the story. And I don't just have to sit there and try to figure out um, and comprehend the story. It's also what I think too. And so I think it's empowering for kids to be engaging in this work. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it, it's um, teaching kids to be evaluative and, you know, and thoughtful and responsive. And I mean, there's value in that. I mean, even just in, in reading and writing in itself, we want to teach kids to do that. But certainly in order to do this work of anti-racist, anti-bias curriculum is, is, is essential. Um, but I mean, that's something that you feel like it would be apparent, but it's not always something that teachers really focus on. They get um, mm-hmm. as far as reading beyond basic comprehension uh, because mm-hmm. so many kids struggle with that, that they are sometimes afraid to take that leap and move beyond, you know, just what's on the printed page. But I think that's such an important conversation that we should be having with our kids. Um, and read alouds are a great time to do that because the comprehension is, you know, it's all listening comprehension. So that way kids can all participate at the level that they're able to participate because they're not held back by decoding or anything like that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So can you, and you mentioned a little bit about this. Can you walk us through the windows, doors, mirrors analogy um, and just kind of talk about why that's relevant in this work? Well, I think a lot of, a lot of us are referring back to this analogy uh, that Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop came up with over 30 years ago in 1990. She wrote an essay about the importance of providing young readers with diverse books that reflect uh, the multicultural nature of our world Um, in which we live. And she came up with this metaphor of windows, doors, and mirrors uh, um, to refer to the need for children to find themselves reflected in books and for books to also provide an opening into worlds beyond their own experience and worlds real or imagined. So she came up with this metaphor with uh, mirrors, where mirrors are books uh, where children can see themselves reflected, like one aspect of their identity is reflected back to them. And windows is 
are books that you can look through and see other worlds and see how they match up or don't match up to your own. Uh, like I just talked about with the book that we read and sliding glass doors kind of allow you to enter that world. They're a little bit more imaginative, oftentimes, um, sometimes mm -hmm. fantasy. And so those are often sliding glass doors, which is why we mostly hear about uh, the windows and the mirrors metaphor, mm -hmm. um, because those are the ones that we're most focused on in terms of creating a uh, more multicultural library. And one of the things that I think is important about her research is that it's not just children who have been underrepresented and marginalized who need these books. Mm -hmm. it, we need a balance of these types of books for our readers. And it's also the children who always find mirrors in their books who need them just as much, I say, because otherwise she says that they will get an exaggerated sense of self, of their own self-worth and a false sense of what the world is like. So they need, we need both. We need mm -hmm. books that are mirrors and books that are windows. And like I said before, it's not just about physical representation, just about like putting in a character here and a character here who's of a, a different color. Um, it's about how accurate and respectful are these representations because in my opinion, cracked mirrors can be just as, um, and perhaps maybe even more devastating to a child's self-esteem uh, and sense of self-worth as not seeing any mirrors at all. So we want the mirrors to be full and complete and not give, not be cracked and give them a false, you know, mm -hmm. not diminish or devalue their humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that's a really good point because I know some people are hesitant um, whenever they whenever they talk about diversifying their their books or people diversifying classroom libraries, and they are afraid that they are no longer going to be represented. So maybe people who are in the majority, whether that comes from um, you know in in the states, for example, if it's if it's a majority race or if it's a majority um, <clears throat> uh, you know gender or religion, people who belong to that majority have become used to seeing themselves in literature frequently. Mm -hmm. Literature is frequently mm -hmm. written about these groups of people. And, um, and in some aspects, I am in that majority and some, you know, in, in others I'm not. Um, so hey. the um, people tend to be afraid that it's going to, to diminish their own opportunities to see themselves. And that really shouldn't be the case. If we mm -hmm. actually have a diverse collection of literature, then we have literature, like you said, that reflects all different kinds of, of backgrounds and races and ethnicities and you know um, cultures and genders and, and religions and, and all the other factors that make up a human being. Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't take away, it's not that it's taking away from anyone. We are just adding to the mix these populations that maybe have not been um, highlighted as, as frequently. And then we're making sure that kids have the opportunity to read things that are like them and that are not like them. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's not a scary thing. That's a really good thing. Exactly. Something that I've been thinking a lot about too, is that we want our students um, to reflect, uh, to read books that reflect society as a whole, not just in the USA too, but books mm -hmm. with characters from different countries and yes. um, that have different representations of, um, those kids in various places. And because otherwise, something that I'm thinking about is that otherwise they can get, um, you know, an idea of what those places are like in their head. Um, and that will never be, um, they will never read anything that will go against that bias that they have in their head. Um, if, if those books don't exist, or if we're not reading those books, uh, I think about this often as an international teacher, but when I try to find books that my kids can maybe relate to, and then, you know, there's three books that, <laughs> that I can think of that show um, 
Colombians or Colombia um, in general and are written in English too, because my kids read and, read and write in English. Mm-hmm. So we want, we want our, all of the books that we read to be um, reflective of our society, not just um, as, as a U.S. society, but uh, as a global society, because our society is shifting and changing. And we don't, we also don't want to give our kids a sense of American exceptionalism. Like we are the best country because that's, you know, those are the, those are the messages that they're getting unless those are directly contradicted in something that they see. Yes. And yeah, and absolutely that's true. Um, We do, we do frequently see that because kids have limited information about other places. And so we see they grow up to be adults who have limited information about other places as well. Yes. And those biases, they don't just not happen because you haven't seen anything to the, to that actually gives you information. They happen. We all, mm-hmm. we all create our biases and children do this at an earlier age than we think. And so yeah. they're, they're, they're pulling together the, the small information that they do have and hearing things that are, um, exclusionary about other countries uh, can help them start to think things that are, that are inaccurate. And um, so, yeah, we want, we have to represent the world that they live in. And um, and are there places that are, that are struggling in America? Yes. And are there places that are struggling in other places? Yes. And, you know, and, and are there places that are really great to live all around the world? Yes. So, (laughs) so yeah, we have to really paint a, a good picture for our kids of what the world looks like. And this is one way to do it. And yes, this is exactly. good because that brings me to what I want to know, which is where do we look for these books? Like who are, do you have any publishers that are really great about publishing this kind of literature um, or some great authors that are just continuously creating or series? Sometimes series um, are really helpful because you can get a bunch of those. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yes, I do. I, I definitely for sure have favorite authors. Um, and I think that there are becoming more and more uh, publishers who are focused on publishing um, diverse literature, which is great to see the shift in our, um, in the field of publishing. I know that Lee and Lowe books is the largest multicultural children's book publisher. And I, I love looking at their new books and they focus a great deal on own voices. And I know, um, there are also large publishers who have, um, divisions that focus solely on publishing multicultural voices. So like our Harper Collins uh, has Amistad Press, for example, that, uh, says that they're the oldest publisher devoted to multicultural literature. So I look at, are there big publishing presses that have smaller house, um, smaller divisions that publish books solely related to those? Another, um, another one of those, um, is started, was started by, an, uh, Kwame Alexander, mm-hmm. um, from H and from HMH books, he started his own um, okay. division or like specialty press called uh, Versify Books, and that's where he published The Undefeated. So he used his own uh, imprint to publish that book. And I think uh, more authors are kind of starting their own um, kind of to encourage diverse voices and diverse books, starting their own publishing presses. I know uh, Rick Rorden Presents is another popular one. If uh, that. Uh, he's focusing on publishing books that are similar to his books in the style of like um, exploring myths and legends and those sorts of things, but um, within different cultures and they're all own voices books. So I read a few of those and they um, are series books that you can look at too, that I think are really good because they're high quality and I uh, respect him as an author as well. I um, do too. I met him. Yeah. I met him years ago before the first Percy Jackson came out. It was being published and it wasn't published yet. And he came to our school because we won a contest and, uh-huh. <laughs> and I got to have lunch with him and he was super friendly and nice. And then he read the first chapter of Percy Jackson to us. 
So whenever it came out, I read it with my kids. And I mean, I just, it's so funny. I was just talking about that book with my brother the other day. That's how much of an impact that series made on me. It's just yeah. fun. So Rick Rudin presents books are very similar in their style, um, but they're all own voices books that he kind of seeks um, and then publishes series based on um, those characters. So you probably really like those too. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of my personal favorite authors, I really love, um, Eugene Morales and Duncan um, Donatia um, and the books the by the by the I think of them as kind of like as kind of the legacy families of children's literature the Pinckney family Jerry Pinckney Andrea Davis Pinckney and uh, Brian Pinckney uh, and I love all of their work and the same as Walter Dean Myers and Christopher Myers his son um, and they write books that are for younger audiences and for older audiences as well. Um, and I love Tracy Sorrell, her picture books. Kelly Yang, she wrote uh, Front Desk and mm -hmm. uh, the sequel. Uh, and she also just came out with a YA book called Parachutes. Um, for younger grades, uh, I love Grace Lynn. And uh, I am obsessed with Jason Reynolds and uh, Kwame Alexander as well, who write books um, Kwame Alexander writes books for different audiences as well. So I love to pull from his work. And one of my new favorite series is uh, Tomi Adeyemi's uh, Children of Blood and Bone series. Mm. Uh, I really enjoy that series. And uh, everything that Elizabeth Acevedo touches and writes, um, she is probably one of my all-time favorite authors. She wrote a poem about a rat and about, <laughs> about rats that literally made me sob. Um, called Ode to the Rat. It's on YouTube. Um, so everything that she writes, I never thought I would cry listening to a poem about a rat, but everything <laughs> that is just gold to me. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for that um, that list of people to look up and, and publishing houses as well, because sometimes that's half the battle is figuring out where to go. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I have a question about whenever people say that something is not good literature. So I actually have worked with people like this who will tell kids, well, I guess you can check that out, but it's not good literature. Um, <laughs> so you know, it might be like, I, yes, I've heard this from people. I'm like, well, so it might be like a comic book or a graphic novel. Whenever they're like, well, that's not like a real book. And, you know, this is also a misconception that a lot of parents have. Um, mm -hmm. Like, well, he won't read real books. He, won't, he only wants to read this. Or like a series that becomes pretty predictable over time. Um, sometimes after a series have been out for a while, they start to sound, I mean, they just kind of change out the, maybe the setting, <laughs> you know, so what do you, what is your response when someone tells a child that something that they're reading is not good literature? Luckily, nobody's ever said that in front of me. Because <laughs> I don't know how I would respond in the moment. Um, I, I feel passionate, um, as you probably do, that um, there is no such thing, in my opinion, as good literature and that we're imposing, you know, our our bias and our, our definition of what constitutes good literature on kids when really what we should be most concerned about is that they're finding books that they love and just putting books in the hands of readers um, and building up their habits and dispositions as readers um, as we teach them how to read. So I think that's of the utmost importance because Sometimes I think if we say you you can't read this or you should only read this, then that hinders their motivation to read books mm -hmm. entirely in the first place. If you know, and it's kind of in a way devaluing their opinion about what qualifies uh, as good literature in the first place. So I think that's important. I also think in terms of I do I have seen this and like read this opinion that 
people might have about comics and graphic novels um, in general, because I think that's an, a, a common a common bias that we as adults have. Um, just knowing um, what we, just thinking about like maybe the comics that we grew up with, um, and and maybe not knowing as much as we should about the genre of like graphic novels um, today. And so I think that we have to remember that they are beneficial and they have their place for struggling and reluctant readers and especially for English language learners mm -hmm. and that we shouldn't take that away because the visual, the visual cues and the visual literacy component is powerful for those readers um, to be able to use those um, like both of those queuing systems, that's powerful. And graphic novels and comics require a different skill set than we normally use if we're not used to dissecting mm -hmm. visual visual illustrations. So I took like in graduate school, I took a whole course in picture books and there's a lot that we can unpack and, and examine with visual literacy that I, I think that we're leaving out if we say that we can't, that kids shouldn't read comics or uh, graphic novels if they're able to read chapter books um, because there's value in looking at um, those skills and helping support those skills. So for instance, looking at um, speech bubbles and how how do the authors use speech bubbles? How are they used differently? And um, things like that, that we can talk with kids about that we want to make sure that we focus on those skills. Luckily, uh, I think, I know that there is kind of an implicit bias against comics and graphic novels because I did have a parent tell me that in a um, in a conference that they didn't want their kid reading those. I think that the common that that it's starting to kind of shift the attitude toward them is starting to shift now that books like uh, New Kid, uh, wonderful graphic novel by Jerry Craft won uh, last year the the Newbery Medal Award. And so I was able to say to the parent, you know, I have this book right here. It, it just won the Newbery Award, which is the most prestigious award basically um, in the U.S. for children's literature. And there's a lot that we can unpack and kind of show uh, show an example to the parent of how we could un unpack graphic novels. And I think it's also important to stress with educators or with parents or anyone who is um, who has kind of these misconceptions about uh, these books that they're actually very complex. Like if you look up um, the reading levels of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, for example, the, the reading level is really high because they're very complex. And there's a lot of research um, that shows that they average more rare or um, more complex words per thousand words than even adult books. They have very complex vocabulary oftentimes. Um, and there's a lot that we can gain from them. So I think it's important to share kind of their value and know their value and be able to um, examine examine those books as you know the different skills that they teach. I try to examine at least one graphic novel, like a few pages of graphic novels and try to include word list books in my classroom too, so mm -hmm. that students are able to develop these skills and don't think that just because it only has pictures that there's not, there's not things that we can discuss and gather and learn from. And mm -hmm. so I think that's powerful. I think the most powerful thing though, when the, when the parent said this, that he didn't want his child, he wanted him, his child, to, he said he, his child only read this, this type of book and he wanted him to shift away from this type of book and maybe use comics and graphic novels as like a stepping stone to real books um, is that I was able to pull from my shelf lots of different graphic novels. I love graphic novels. And so I said, you know, here's adults graphic novels and uh, I read them. 
I read them too, and right. they can be very complex. And you, you can read about real characters like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, real people, I mean. And so to be able to share that and be a model um, for that, I think is, is going to say more than anything that I could ever say about them because um, modeling, as we know, is um, very valuable. And so I think that was essential. And then I showed him um, some book series, some graphic novels that were, uh, you know, historical fiction. And so he knew that it's, um, graphic novels and comics aren't just one thing. There are lots right. of different things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah as, as you were talking about that, I mean, I, I love a good graphic novel as well. And um, I read the Mouse series a few years ago. Yeah. Um, very moving and mm -hmm. and so much going on there. And yeah, so I, I remember hearing that research about um, the vocabulary, the level of vocabulary and language that was included in, in comics um, whenever I was kind of a new teacher. And that kind of helped me frame, you know, my, my understanding around them because we, that wasn't really something that we had learned about much. I, when I was a kid, I read like Archie comics, you know? <laughs> so, and he yeah. and stuff like that. So. <laughs> and um, they've changed so much too. So that I, I mean, it's really exciting to see how many new ones are being published and how wonderful they are. And um, mm -hmm. to be able to read adult comics, um, I think uh, a good talk was one of my, as a graphic memoir that I read last year. That was one of my absolute favorite adult books that I read last year. Um, and so I think we as adults can also model that and, and try to read new ones. I, I love Persepolis and other ones. And so I think that will speak more than, you know, anything that we could ever say. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's kind of one thing you just mentioned is, is modeling and showing people that, um, that this is the way that we can approach reading and literature. What is the best way that you found to help people think differently about the literature that they use in their classroom? What has been effective for you? Because it's, it's, it's a challenge for some. I think one of the things that has resonated with people is just trying to articulate and put into words um, why, why a book doesn't quite sit well with me and being able to do that concisely. I've been writing all of them on Instagram. Um, and so every time I write, every time I write a post, I have to go back through and edit and try to make it shorter and more concise because I always have so much more to say than, than characters in my caption. Um, and so I think sometimes uh, people or educators or parents have um, similar feelings about a book, um, but weren't quite able to put their finger on it. And then when they have something tangible, like with Stone Fox, I know Stone Fox is a book that I, a chapter book that I wrote about that is also used in a popular reading curriculum. They're able to take that back to um, take that back to their administration or their their team and say, "Listen, like I read this, I, I started thinking about this, and it's already there, put into words for them." And so I think that's really helpful. I've also tried with a lot of books um, that I suggest using with caution. Mm -hmm. um, what are some questions that you can use with kids uh, to explore these books and kind of dive into the issues uh, so that you can use them? Um, but here are some of the things that you might want to talk about if you decide to use this book. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been one of the other things that's been really helpful for, for readers is to see, okay, I, I did want to use this book and I want to explore these issues, but I didn't quite know what questions to ask or explore with my kids or my students. And so that's something that I've been told has been really helpful. I personally, I think that the comments, like we talked about earlier, the comments that um, we that have been in the reconsider let post have been very beneficial, uh, especially in terms of looking at representations of disability and representations of gender, because oftentimes I'm writing those reviews also as a cultural outsider. So. I think, you know, there's, an, there's enough um, 
readers now, I'm, I'm very grateful that other people are able to come in and say, actually, I am, um, you know, multiply dis- disabled. And I don't prefer that term because of these reasons. And there's, there's been a lot of engagement in the comments. And so it's when it's coming from someone who is um, a cultural insider and is able to share their perspective and their opinion that holds a lot of weight and a lot of value more than I could give. Uh, and I am so grateful for those um, commenters because when the, it's difficult to refute when you see comments like that, like this is harmful, this is harmful to me, um, or I wouldn't use this book because of this reason, then mm-hmm. it's difficult to refute that. And there's a book that I've had to go back to go back to that I said, you know, I recommended it with caution, but I reflected on it and, I, and had some conversations with some people and I had to go back and say, you know, actually don't use this book. Uh, I wouldn't recommend using this book because people from that group, that marginalized group, have this opinion and we have to respect that opinion in my, you know, in my opinion. So uh, that's been one of the most powerful things that I think has come out of this for sure. Yeah. I think that's a really good point having um, people from the group and really using their, like, what is it, what is, where are they coming from um, that mm-hmm. we may not understand the perspective completely, but we should be respectful of that perspective because we cannot mm-hmm. understand it completely being from the outside mm-hmm. of the group. And it's difficult to unpack all of these books if we're cultural outsiders. And so I'm, very grateful to those opinions because um, as as an outsider, I, I my perspective is just much different and I don't, some of these issues don't immediately jump out at me like other issues might. And so I need outside perspectives to really come to a full understanding of a text. Yeah, for sure. That's great. So if coaches only walk away from this episode with one idea, what should it be? I would say that um, books matter, which we know, and in our classroom libraries, um, we want an overabundance of books. Um, I think Fontes and Pinnell and the International Reading Association say uh, between 300 to 600, but uh, we want, I, I think even more than that, like way more than that, because we want them immediately accessible and available, and we want so many different types of representations. Um, so I would say books matter, but also the type of books that we use in our classrooms really matter. And to make sure that um, the demographics of your classroom and your school are reflected, but also that you're providing uh, that you're providing windows in your in your books as well. Mm-hmm. And it's it's definitely uh, messy work. There's not like a clear cut way that says like you know this book isn't gray or here's you know here's some things that you can use with this book. It's messy work um, and is going to look different in every school and in every classroom. Um, but it's just best to dive in and and take this on because um, we've spent a lot of time as educators and as uh, you know researchers focusing on. We want more books that are culturally diverse. We spent a lot of time doing that. And I think we're getting to a point where now educators are like, yes, I need more culturally diverse books. And they're bringing in mirrors and windows, but are they the best that we have to offer? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where we need to go next and where we can start thinking about. Um, and it's definitely messy, but it's, it's, it's worth it for sure. Excellent. Thank you. So how can people find you online to learn more? I'm on Instagram at Children's Lit World, and I am working on a website. So eventually, <laughs> maybe when you listen to this, uh, it will be at <laughs> childrenslitworld.com. <laughs> okay. If I ever finish the website, and then I will have more characters than Instagram allows me, and I can really dive into some things. <laughs> That's right. Your blog posts can be epic. That's fine. Yes, they yeah. can have all of the pictures and all of the things. And all of the- <laughs> 
Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today and having this conversation, you know, helping us think through some of these ideas. I think um, something to, to take away from this is that it's not that there is, we don't have like a hard answer on everything. It's a, it's a process and we're trying to figure out how to do best by kids and people. And, um, and so, yeah, there are some things that we know for sure, but there are some things that, that change is ongoing. And so like, we are always reflecting and learning. And so thank you for helping us along that process. Definitely. Just dive in. Yes. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful chatting with you. Oh, great. Yes. I have enjoyed our chat too. Whoa. So that was like a lot of information, right? This might be one that you have to go back through and listen to (laughs) one more time because there was just a lot to think about. Um, I'm, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot to chew on. And, you know, like I said, this is, this is a process. It's a, a process of learning and reflecting and really thinking about what messages are we sending with the literature that we choose. So um, I hope that you can take some of these ideas and apply them to your work with teachers, to your selections and recommendations that you make, um, to the purchases that you make on campus, and really just kind of to our frame of mind as we approach Uh, curriculum planning and and literature selection because that can support everything that we're trying to grow. I actually have a free download that you might really enjoy. It's a mentor text list and it does include mentor texts for um, different topics. So I have mentor texts for reading and writing for math and science. Um, And then I even have uh, mentor texts for sort of like classroom community and and those I try to um, reflect different backgrounds of people. And so I really recommend that you go grab that free download. Uh, that is actually on my blog at buzzingwithmissb.com. And that's going to be buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 54. Episode with a capital E, the number five and the number four. So at buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 54, you can grab the mentor text list and it's a free download. You're welcome to share that with your teachers or you can direct them there and they can download it themselves. And um, so I really hope that that'll be a valuable resource to you as you are planning and developing curriculum with teachers. Next week, I have an episode that I'm super excited about. It's Steve Barkley. I love Steve Barkley. He reminds me of my grandfather. Don't tell him I said that. Um, I, I, I find his nature very kind. <laughs> and Steve, so Steve Barkley is an expert in, in the world of coaching. And so he's gonna help us think about how we respond to teachers who are not excited about our support, which we might call resistance. And he's going to talk about some different ways that we can react to this, um, what some things that we can say. He gives us some really beautiful strategies that we can use whenever teachers are demonstrating resistance to help them start to kind of reframe what it is that they're interested in learning and, and moving those complaints Um, in gripes into goals he talks about, um, which is very similar to my complaints into goals strategy. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that episode with you. That's coming out next week. That's episode 55. And I hope that you join me for that one. Until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.